This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. All right, well, let's take our Bibles and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to read the entire section um, so that we get a sense of the context. We haven't been in the the text for a few weeks. And so the apostle starts in chapter 4 and verse 1, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not acquitted by this. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And I would indeed, and I would indeed that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Well, tonight's text is actually verses 6 and 7. And um, this passage is really, it's, it's pretty fascinating because uh, it is, uh, it's unique in the sense that, that Paul is actually giving us um, personal autobiographical insight into what he has been doing. I mean, in, in a sense, you wish that Paul would do this more often, sort of explain why he's been saying the things that he's been saying. Um, but even though he's explaining what he's been talking about, the way that he explains it is not all that explicable. 
And so, uh, New Testament commentators in dealing with verse 6, for instance, one has said, this verse is a headache for translators. And others, another has said, the meaning here may simply be beyond discovery. Now, I think that that's an exaggeration. I don't think it's actually... um, I mean, it's a little headache, it's not a big headache, and I don't think it's totally beyond discovery. Um, Sometimes you can make a text out to be so hard so that when you present a plausible explanation, you seem brilliant. Um, And so I think it's an exaggeration, uh, but it is a tough text. And uh, there are certainly some challenges. But in the end, as we look at this passage tonight, Paul is going to show us not only... um, what it is to be tactful. Anybody need a lesson? Okay. Uh, He shows us not only how to be tactful, but he also is very effective in driving home the fundamental point that we should not be arrogant and puffed up, especially in elevating certain leaders or teachers. Now, as we come to this text tonight, I have to tell you up front that there are, there are a couple of different views of, of what's actually going on here that end up influencing the way that we look at um, particular verses here. Uh, for instance, Gordon Fee, whom I really like and, and, and greatly admire, he sees this whole section as Paul really kind of digging in and defending his own ministry. And that kind of influences the way that he sees Uh, the rest of the text. And um, although there were certainly what we could call some Pauline detractors in Corinth, uh, I don't think that that's what Paul is focusing on here. I think Paul's concern is actually much broader than just how the Corinthians are thinking about him. Now, to be sure, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, Paul is deeply concerned about how the Corinthians are thinking about him because, by and large, almost the whole church had turned against him at one point. But that's not really the situation here. And so, uh, as, we, as we go through, I think that we'll see that Paul is, um, is, is, in a sense, giving us a much broader perspective than just... Um, trying to correct the Corinthians' perspective on him. So a few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And let me just just kind of get a running start by reviewing that very quickly. Paul, in verse 1, wants the Corinthians to think correctly about God's servants. Now, he's going to be speaking in first-person plural, uh, in particular about himself and Apollos, and he'll explain why. But he starts off with the command that a man must consider us like this. And then he says, there's two ways that you're supposed to consider us. One is as servants of Christ. Servants. Um, Those who actually are called to, uh, in a sense, be domestic house slaves. Um, Certainly a, a, a position with responsibility, but a slave nonetheless... But the other way that they're supposed to consider us is as stewards of the mysteries of God. And so both of these uh, images that Paul brings out, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, what both images do is in a sense they give um, a very realistic and balanced perspective on how we're supposed to consider the servants of Christ. On the one hand, they're servants like we're all servants, 
They're not masters. They're not kings. They're not royalty. They're servants of Christ. But they've also been given the incredible responsibility to be stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, they have been entrusted with the very revelation of God's word. And and so as they're entrusted with that, it is an incredible responsibility. And because they're servants, they are accountable ultimately to their master, not to the fellow servants. Which ends up being Paul's next point, is that the criteria for judging God's stewards, his God's servants, of course, is just simply one criteria. That is faithfulness. Here's what's supposed to be found in a servant, that he be found faithful. So at the end of the day, what matters is not, is not the impressiveness of the gifts. It is not the, uh, the intellect. It is not the education. What is, what is uh, the criteria for success for God's servants is faithfulness. So at the end of the day, that's what, that's what we should all not only seek to be, faithful, but we should be seeking those who are faithful in discharging their duties and executing their calling. Paul then talks about, in verses 3 to 5, about judging God's servants and talks about the insignificance of present judgment, whether it's by the Corinthians judging him or even him judging himself. Why? Because the only judge that really matters is the Lord himself. Okay? And, uh, you know, I've, I've told you before, it's, it's, it's nice to be liked, right? I mean, every, and everybody wants to be liked. But, it, you know, the bottom line is that for God's servants, there's only one person he, the, that servant ultimately needs to please. And that's the Lord. You know? And so the fear of man brings a snare always. And in fact, the fear of man among ministers is, is, a, um, is a very dangerous snare because it may cause you to hold back on saying things that need to be said or saying other things for the sake of flattery. At the end of the day, you can't fear man. You can't try to be a man pleaser. You have to seek to simply please the Lord. So, that's what Paul says. He's the only one that matters, and the one who's judging me is the Lord. And so, he concludes with the idea that judgment at the Lord's coming should compel us to stop judging prematurely, and, by the way, stop judging imperfectly. You have to remember the Corinthians. Did the Corinthians have a really good plumb line by which they were judging God's servants? No, they, they were so skewed, they were impressed with all of the wrong things, right? And they were not impressed with the things that really should have gripped them, right? And so here they were, they had, they had very skewed priorities and skewed perspectives, and, and they had a, a very discombobulated view of, of what God's servants should be like. In other words, let me just put it in contemporary context. The Corinthians would have been incredibly impressed with the guys on TBN, okay? And Paul says, listen, What matters is faithfulness. Week in, week out, year in, year out, 
decade after decade faithfulness. So, Paul goes into that, and then, starting verse 6, which is our text tonight, he then starts to shift gears, and he says, Now, brothers... What he's doing, now these things, brethren, he is shifting gears, but he's actually calling by, by throwing in the, the vocative brothers or brethren, he's calling for their full attention. He wants them now to begin to see and understand what he's, what he's doing. And Gordon Fee actually says here in verse 6, what we have is the argument now reaches the moment of truth. Or we could put it like this, Paul's argument is now going to be put into shoe leather for the Corinthians. He says this, and this is, this is a little challenging. He says, I have, New American Standard says, I have applied figuratively these things. Now, just right off the bat, you understand that, that this is not abundantly clear what Paul's talking about. Um, the word that he uses actually just means to change something from one form to another. All right? That's what the word means. To change one thing, the form of one thing, to something else. So the word ends up um, being used in a way that is uh, something like this, to show, to show a connection or the bearing of one thing in relation to another. Okay? Now, I think the uh, New American Standard unnecessarily throws the term figuratively in there. I think we can just stick with the idea of, I have applied these things. Applied what things? I think that Paul has in view what he's been talking about from 3, 5 through 4, 5. These things goes back to his description of himself and Apollos. I planted or, or, uh, yeah, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase, and he starts talking in terms of, you know, you are God's field, we are God's co-workers, and then he starts talking about laying a foundation, and he start, he's talking about workers who are building with wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones, and that these servants are going to give an account Right, and so this is what this is what Paul's been talking about, and so I think that he is saying, I have applied these things, these truths that I've been talking about, about watering or planting and watering and building and laying foundation and all of that. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos. So far, so good. Pretty simple groups himself with Apollos to underscore, right, the unity between him and Apollos in ministry. In fact, if you remember back to chapter 3, you remember what he does. He says, um, so, so there's one who plants and one who waters, but, but God is the one who causes things to grow. And so in a sense, each person is going to receive their own reward from God. In other words, each worker has an individual responsibility and accountability to God. But at the end of the day, they're all working together to ultimately uh, further the same purpose under God. 
right? And so he said, so I've applied these things to Apollos and myself. Um, In other words, I've used Apollos and myself as an illustration for you. Now, this is, this is where you have to think hard about the text. I hope, that, I hope that when you read your Bible, you actually do think. Right? It's a good thing to read and think at the same time. It's a better thing to think about what you're reading. Okay? It's not just good enough to think and read at the same time. Think about what you're reading at the same time and ask yourself what is being said. And so when he says, for your sake, see, and this is where I think the idea is not just, um, I talked about these things uh, in an illustrative or uh, an applicable kind of way to Apollos and me um, so that I can help you have a better attitude towards me. Okay? I don't think that's... where he's going. I think that what he's basically saying is, I have taken Apollos and me as bondservants of Christ, and I have used us as examples in this whole section that we've been talking about, and I did it for your sake. What does he mean by that? Well, I think that what he means is something like this. The material that I've just gone through, 3, 5 through 4, 5, and of course Paul didn't have chapters and verses, I've applied to myself and Apollos, and although I was using our names, what I was hoping is that you would actually see that by me using Apollos and me as examples, that what I'm really talking about is you and your church and your leaders and your teachers, You know, we do this. One commentator says, Paul has changed what is relevant to others' names to what is relevant to Paul and Apollos. In other words, he was addressing a situation that the Corinthians should have said, oh, I see what he's saying. So you sit down with your son and you say, you know, son, I want to talk to you. Now, when I was a young man, I used to be I used to be harsh, I used to be irritable. I used to have a short temper. I used to uh I used to make this mistake and that mistake. And I realized that that was not the way to go. I realized that I was making huge mistakes and and ruining relationships. Okay? Now I might be talking about myself. But you know what I'm doing. I want him to connect the dots. I want him to see through me that he may be doing the very same thing. And that's what Paul's doing here. So I used Apollos and myself as examples. I applied these things to us, but I did it for for your sake. And so, in other words, if it's wrong for you to uh, have a party spirit regarding me or Apollos or Cephas, if it's wrong for, for you to unduly elevate one of us over the other, then it's most certainly wrong for you to be doing this within your own assembly. 
I mentioned, in fact, going all the way back to chapter 1, I mentioned that the very idea of I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ, those may have actually not even been real party divisions within the Corinthian assembly. But Paul was using them in an exemplary type way to kind of demonstrate the divisions that were going. See, if, if he'd have said, you know, let's say there was a, there was a, a pastor, uh, pastor Joe Blow and a pastor Jim Blow and uh, pastor John Blow, okay? Joe, Jim, John, all right? And if, if Paul would have said, uh, I, what are you doing saying, I'm of Joe, I'm of Jim, I, I'm of John? Guess what he would have done? would have actually, in a sense, sort of turned him off from the very get-go. And by the way, we'd have had no clue what he was talking about 2,000 years later. And so, David Garland actually summarizes this up pretty nicely. He says, Paul's addressing the overzealous allegiance to their own leaders who have gone unnamed which has caused division and discord in the Corinthian assembly. Paul speaks of one unity of his and Apollos' ministry, intending them to apply it to themselves and their leaders. And so why does he do this? Because he doesn't want to actually publicly humiliate anyone. He doesn't want to come across as harsh. In fact, if you look back at chapter 4, verse 14, which is where we stopped, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul's, Paul's point here is to simply say, listen, I don't want to come across harsh. I don't want to come across and embarrass anyone. I'm not, I'm not out to just name names and, and point out your flaws in a direct way that makes you uh, feel bad. I've used Paul, Apollos and me as an example to make the connections. Now, thankfully, he goes on and he says, I uh, have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written. Middle of verse 6. So Paul says, I did this so that you might learn something. I did this so that I could instruct you. In, in a sense, as a father is, is instructing his son, I did this so that you can learn. And there's a reason why I'm doing it so that you can learn this way. Again, David Garland's very good here. He says, by using aliases rather than the fingering of the real culprits and by stressing that his depreciation of the role of leaders as servants extends to himself... He allays potential resentment and makes it easier for them to swallow the medicine. In other words, Paul's being tactful. I said this, I used us as the examples so that you could learn from us. So that you could actually learn not to exceed what was written. And so... Notice the, uh, the emphasis there in order that you might learn by us. So that you might see the lesson in us. And here, here's the lesson. Not to go beyond what is written. Now, 
Well, here's another part to the passage that is a little challenging. And actually what makes it more challenging is that the Greek text doesn't have a verb in this clause. It just says, so that you might learn not beyond what stands written. We have to throw in a verb not to exceed or not to go beyond. There, there is no such verb. Some people think that actually learning Greek makes, uh, makes understanding the New Testament a lot easier. Actually, it's just the opposite. You get to see all of the options and ambiguities, and here is a good one. So Paul says, in order that you might learn not beyond what stands written. What is, what is he talking about? Now, this is, this is kind of fun because when you start reading the commentaries, you get about seven options on what this means, all right? Now, for your sake, I'm not going to tell you all seven options because some of them actually are just quite stupid, all right? Um, there is one that I actually liked, and that was that this must have been a phrase, don't go beyond what's written, um, this must have been something that, that penmanship teachers told their students. In other words, we would say, stay within the lines. When, you, when you're tracing the letters, don't go beyond what's written. Okay? And uh, in other words, um, don't color outside the lines. Okay? Which is another way to say something like, hey... Keep the rules. Okay? Keep the rules. Don't go outside the boundaries. Right? Well, that's pretty creative. But I think that there's actually quite a, uh, there's a simpler explanation of when he, Paul says, not beyond what stands written. And here's, here's the great clue. The expression, what stands written. Because Paul only uses this phrase, this verb, in this tense, for Scripture. It's actually quite simple. You ever heard of Occam's razor? Principle of parsimony? No? Okay. Well, I don't even know why I'm here then. (laughs) Occam's razor is... Let me say it as let me say it simply. The simplest explanation is usually the best explanation. We have the tendency to try to convolute things and complicate things. And if something if an explanation is too complicated, then guess what? It's probably just not true. Right? You have to go with the simplest explanation. And so what is the simplest explanation here? To say, not to go beyond what is written. Well, what is written must be the scriptures. And in fact, here's, here's something. Paul has already used a number of Old Testament texts in, the, in this passage. Going back to chapter 1. In fact, just uh, flip over back to chapter 1. Notice verse 19. For it is written. Okay? So you see some similarity, right? 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Uh, 131. That just as it is written. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 2.9. But just as... You, you get in the hang of this, right? It is written. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and ear has not heard and which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. 3.19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written. He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Verse 20. And again, and again what? And again, it is written. The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So I would, I would submit to you that what Paul's talking about here, I'm trying to use Apollos and myself as examples so that you could learn not to go beyond what's written in the scriptures. And if you just take what Paul uses up to this point, do you know what you have? And that is that the Bible actually forbids human pride and compels us to boast only in the Lord. That's what's written. And so, they're boasting, the Corinthians boasting of gifts and power and wisdom and spirituality and human teachers all springs from a proud heart that in turn causes division. And once you have a proud heart that is the spring of division, guess what you're doing? You're going beyond what is written. In other words, you are, you are going outside the bounds of God's word. What Paul's calling the Corinthians here is, is to simply um, to live within the bounds of God's word. To live according to God's word. Not to go beyond what's written according to their own wisdom, their own knowledge, their own insight. Because all of that is ultimately foolishness before the Lord. Where is real wisdom? Real wisdom is in the word. And so you live according to the word. You don't go outside of it. You stay within it. This is actually just a great principle broadly applied, isn't it? Not just simply, you know, don't be proud, but be humble. Okay, that's, don't go beyond what's written. So you stay within those bounds. That's good. That's the focus here. But this is a good principle to apply all around to life. Where are the boundary markers that God has set for our lives? Where are the standards that he's established for us actually to live in accordance with? Where does he tell us how to be husbands and how to be fathers and how to be wives and mothers and employees and employers and citizens? How does he tell us, where does he tell us what it means to follow Christ and what that looks like? He did not leave it up to our imaginations. He revealed it in his word. 
Where does he reveal how he should be worshipped? Where does he reveal how we should live our lives before him? He's the one who has actually revealed it for us. As Christians, the fundamental governing principle of all of our life should be this. I am committed to the lordship of Jesus in such a way that all of my life is to be lived in principled obedience to the revelation of God's will in God's word. Period. Period. This is the way God tells me to live. This is the way God tells me to think. This is the way God tells me to worship. He's the authority. I'm the subject. He's the Lord. I'm the servant. This is the revelation of his will. I am not to go beyond what's written. During the Reformation, there was a There was an expression drawn from Colossians 2 that was will worship. Will worship. Not the worship of the will, but the worship according to one's own will. And of course, the reformers believed that worship should be governed by the word not your will. In other words, your desires, your wishes, your will has nothing to do with it. Have you actually come to grips with that as a Christian? That what you want is not the ultimate important thing in the universe, but what God wants? That your will is not the determining factor in anything? But God's will is. And so, as Christians, and this is, this is what Paul's trying to drive these Corinthians to see, you can't just make up your own standards. You can't just set up what you think is wisdom. You can't set up what you think is spirituality. And yet, this is, this is the bane, by the way, of the modern evangelical church in many ways is we just kind of do everything our own way, according to our own whims, according to our own wills, and yet God says, I've given you my word. Don't go beyond what's written. Well, we're modern people. We've got technology. We might have some improved ideas. Never. Never. It doesn't matter how much technology you have. It doesn't matter how much of a brain you can hold in your hand with a touchpad screen. God's word is absolutely, wholly, completely sufficient for faith and godliness and don't go beyond what's written. And Paul says, this is why I want you to learn why you shouldn't go beyond what's written in order that you might not be puffed up. So you have to see the the progression. So I've used Apollos and myself. I've applied these things to us so that you could learn from us not to go beyond what's written. And the reason it's important that you learn that lesson is in order that none of you be puffed up. I actually love uh, the word puffed up 
fusio, right? Fusio. Um, if you're puffed up, um, by the way, it's a bad thing. The idea is to have an exaggerated self-conception to become proud, conceited, or to put on airs. Now, I know that you probably are trying to think really hard of somebody that you met in your lifetime that fits that description. Right? Some of you are painfully honest with yourself and have just said, I am the man. Right? That's me. And so Paul says, I'm writing this to you so that you can learn to stay within the bounds of Scripture because if you're staying in the bounds of Scripture, that's going to actually help you not to get puffed up. What's interesting is that there, there are a number of words for, for proud, pride, boasting, arrogance, so forth. This is one of Paul's favorites. There are others. Um, you take Paul's use of the word pride in its various Greek words, and do you know what you find? That Paul uses those words that 90% of the time that Paul uses those words, guess where they occur? First and second Corinthians. Okay. That tells us something. And that is, the Corinthians had a pride problem. I mean, and so you have here, so that you would not be puffed up. Look at chapter 4, verse uh, 18. Same, same word, now some have become arrogant, puffed up, as though I were not coming to you. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant or puffed up, but their power. Okay. You, you know what Paul's saying is, by the way, those who are puffed up only have words. They have no power. We say that they are, uh, what do we say? Full of hot air. Exactly. Putting it nicely. Right? Paul says, when I come, I'm going to find out who's full of hot air. Right? Who's puffed up with their own, you know, who's their own wind bag. All right? Uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Paul says, and you have become puffed up. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. Now, that's an interesting use when we get there. We're going to see that Paul actually is, um, is uh, upbraiding them. He's rebuking them because they were so arrogant about how tolerant they were. Chapter 8, verse 1 now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that all we all have knowledge. Knowledge does what? It puffs up. It makes arrogant. But love edifies. <clears throat> Chapter 13. You should already know this one for sure. Chapter 13 and verse 4. Love is patient. 
Love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not puffed up. It's not arrogant. Now, David Garland, again, he makes this comment. He says, thinking too highly of oneself or others with one whom is aligned has antisocial consequences and calls for sobering reassessment of oneself. I love that. If you think too highly of yourself, there are going to be antisocial consequences. Let me just spell one out. Nobody will like you. Okay? That's just one, right? If you think so highly of yourself, you will be hard to take, right? If you only align yourselves with those who uh, you also have a high opinion of, you will become cliquish, arrogantly so, and you will, in a sense, um, end up breaking relationships left and right. This happens all the time, actually, doesn't it? And here, Paul says, he says, I want you to understand, you don't, I don't want you to get puffed up. I don't want you to get proud, arrogant, conceited. In, in fact, you need to have a sober self-assessment of yourself. Isn't that hard? Sober self-assessment. We're usually always the heroes of our own stories. Right? The way that we view ourselves is typically not in alignment with reality. We think that we're better than we are. We think that we're smarter than we are. We think we're more gifted than we are. I've told you this before. In... um, um, in Cordelia Fine's book, A Mind of Its Own, she talks, she's not a Christian, but she goes through and she talks about um, the fact that 90% of college students think they're above average. You understand, like, statistically, that's not possible. unless you want to redefine average, right? And ironically, 80% of college professors think that they are above average professors. The point of the story, of course, is avoid college. No, that's not... (laughs) That might not be a bad idea anymore, right? Okay, but uh, here's the idea. Humility in the Bible is not thinking less of yourself, like, oh, I'm so rotten, I hate my own guts, and blah, blah, blah. Actually, humility in the Bible is having a sober self-assessment. Having sober judgment about who we are. Having sober judgment about what we are. Which will have some positives and lots of negatives. Right? And so Paul says, listen, I'm writing so that you don't get puffed up. And then he has this really peculiar phrase, in behalf of one against the other. ESV, in favor of one against another. Now, of course, you remember the Corinthians are all hung up on their favorite wisdom teachers and their favorite power preachers and all of that. Uh, The NIV 
says, then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. New Living Translation, the purpose is that none of you will be inflated with pride in favor of one person over against another. What Paul does not want them to do is to become so inflated in the sense of attaching themselves to this one preacher and then uh, elevating him over them. By the way, if you attach yourself to somebody, then elevate that person above somebody else. You know what you've just done, right? You've just elevated yourself. Right, so this is this is why this is rooted in in pride, and I think that at this point, I don't I don't think that that Paul is actually saying specifically that you would be proud in raising up um, Apollos above me. I think he's actually just stating a general principle that you don't go so elevating people and yourselves at the expense of somebody else. Do we do this today? Yeah. We do it all the time. One of the things that we sometimes do is we get really narrow on who we think we can learn from. And we start to have just kind of one well that we go to because we think that that's the only one. And of course, what we end up doing then is because that's the only one, we then end up um, uh, saying that all the other wells must be poison. Because this is my well and this is where I learn and this is where I grow. Young men are especially uh, prone to this. They latch on to a, to a teacher, to a theologian, to a particular theological perspective. They latch on. Everything else now becomes heresy. They're now attached to it in such a way that, uh, that they have found the truth and uh, everyone else is a liar. Paul's point is God doesn't work that way. And you're just a big... Proud, arrogant, conceited windbag when you think that your own little particular school of thought is the bastion of all truth. One of the things I love to uh, think about is that when my mom was converted to Christ back around 1977 or 78, sometime around there, God actually used charismatic Catholics to bring her to Christ. Now, am I in favor of charismatic Catholics? Am I going to run out and become one? And the answer is no. But you know what? God used them. When my dad came to Christ, he came to Christ listening to Dr. J. Vernon McGee driving the Bible bus through the book of Romans. Okay. Now, if you know J. Vernon McGee, he was 
He was a dyed-in-the-wool dispensationalist, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, you name it. And he was dyed-in-the-wool, and that's how he taught the Bible. And I don't agree with that perspective anymore. But you know what? God used him in a way that my dad heard the gospel and heard about Jesus and heard the truth of God. We can, become, we can become so Corinthianized that we think that our own little group is the only one that we can learn from. And what I want to say is, of course, you want discernment, you want to be careful, but you also want to realize that you can, you can learn from a variety of God's servants. And they may not have graduated from the right school, according to you. And they may not have the right degree, and they may not have the right theological pedigree, but you know what? There's a lot that we can learn from God's servants in all different circles and quarters. And so, Paul, <laughs> Paul actually, um, in verse 7, this is the way I look at verse 7. Paul's taking a big pen, and he's, he's poking, he's deflating their big um, uh, windbag heart and mind. <laughs> Their big puffed up heart. He says, for, verse 7, for, New American Standard, at least the, 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 old, the old New American Standard, says, for who regards you as superior? That's probably not um, right. The question should be something like this. Who makes you different? Or who causes you to differ? Or who makes, who is it who makes distinctions? This question, by the way, not who regards you as superior, that, that actually kind of misses. Who causes you to differ? In other words, let me, let me put it here in shoe leather for you. What makes you different? Who makes you different? from your neighbor or from your unbelieving sibling or from your unbelieving family members? Who is it that causes you to differ? Where does the distinction come from between you and everybody else? And of course, this question is designed to do what? It is designed to actually strike at their pride and their presumption because what is the implicit answer in who causes you to differ? God! God is the one who causes you to differ. God is the one who made you, you. God is the one who made you, you with all of your distinctions and all of your um, defining quirks and idiosyncrasies. God is the one who made you, you, whether it's the color of your skin or the oddness of your personality, whatever it may be. God is the one that made you to differ. And, and how do we know this? Well, already in the first three chapters, Paul's already told us that it's God who chooses and it's God who calls and it's God who puts us into Christ. And when we get to chapter 12, it's going to be God who gives us his spirit, who gifts us according to his will, not according to ours. So we are what we are because that's how God made us. Who causes you to differ? Aren't you glad that this is, is not like, um, you know, the first church of the Stepford Wives? 
I know, I just lost about three quarters of you because you're not even old enough to know. How many of you remember Stepford Wives? Okay, (laughs) great, all the old people. Um, Yeah, this is why we have Jason around for more contemporary illustrations. God is the one that creates variety within the body, diversity within the body. It is God that creates the diversity. I mean, could you imagine if, if, if there were no differentiation, if there were no distinctions, if we were just all the same? And you see, this is, this is the irony of the Corinthian mentality is you glom on to a certain teacher and you know what you want? You know what you want everybody to be? You want everybody to be like you as you follow this guy. Paul says, God's the one that makes you different. Next question. What do you have which you did not receive? So if the first question strikes at their pride and their presumption, guess what this question strikes at? Their ingratitude. So let me ask it again. What do you have which you did not receive? What's the implied answer? You don't want to flunk this question. Nothing. What do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. Why? Because everything I have is the result of a good, gracious God. And and understand that this idea, what do you have that you did not receive, um, Paul's not just strictly speaking here in terms of uh, your house and your car and your job. He's thinking in much grander terms of of an eternal eternal inheritance, eternal life, life in Christ, redemption, sanctification, justification with God. The indwelling Holy Spirit. What do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. Everything that I have, I have received as a gift. Gordon Fee says, all is of grace. Do you actually believe that? All is of grace. Nothing is deserved. Do you believe that? Nothing is earned. Those who so experience grace also live from a posture of unbounded gratitude. You see, if, if, if we really had the grace of God sinking into our hearts and our minds, do you know what would be just overflowing out of us? Would be a tremendous, profound sense of gratitude day in, day out for all things. Fee goes on, he says, those such as the Corinthians who think of themselves as especially gifted with the spirit and wisdom, thereby enabling them to judge one another, reflect a total misunderstanding of grace and quite miss the humility of God expressed in the crucified one. Paul's final question. And if you received it, literally, and if you received, why do you boast as not having received. 
<laughs> There's a wonderful progression here, right? Who causes you to differ? What do you have that you didn't receive? And now, by the way, if you received it, if it was a gift, why do you boast as if it wasn't a gift? This question strikes at their divisive boasting. And the answer, why do you boast as if you had not received? The answer is, I shouldn't be boasting as if I hadn't received, because everything I have is a gift of God's grace. Paul is just driving home this idea that that our attitude should be that of humility and gratitude. Could you, could you imagine, could you imagine, just, just think about your family, your family circle. What would family life be like if humility and gratitude gripped our hearts? Would we treat each other differently? I would suggest we would deeply treat each other differently. What would happen if gratitude and humility were the chief virtues in the body of Christ? What would that look like? Well, I'll tell you what it would look like. It would look like revival probably. Paul's whole point is this. You can't boast about being a recipient of grace. You know what's ironic to me is that those of us who would identify ourselves as reformed or loving, embracing, adhering to the doctrines of grace, believing that God chose us, believing that we were unable uh, in and of ourselves to do any good, to believe that, that actually God sends forth his son to secure our redemption, not just make it possible so we can pitch our two cents in, and that it's God who actually irresistibly calls us to himself, and it's God who actually preserves us all the way to the end. The, the, the amazing thing is that many of us who say we believe these doctrines usually don't have the commensurate humility that these doctrines should infuse. Does that make sense? If you really believe that it is all of grace, not of me, then we should be the most humble people on the planet and we should be the most grateful people on the planet. Grace transforms you that way. To be puffed up, <laughs> I mean, think about it, to be puffed up is just simply a denial of God's grace. It's a denial of, of the fact that God is the fountain of all the good that we have. If I walk around like, like a spiritual peacock, preening my feathers for everybody to see, what am I concerned about? God's glory or mine? Gordon Fee again says, grace has a leveling effect, right? Isn't that true? Grace has a leveling effect. Did you deserve to be saved any more than I did? Did I deserve it any less? Well, you can't deserve it any less than we did. 
We were not just undeserving, we're ill-deserving. So there's no one that's more deserving than anyone else. And by the way, the minute you say, well, I deserved grace more than you, then you're not even talking about grace anymore. Grace is no longer grace when you're talking about I deserve, right? So grace has this leveling effect. You know what it does? Is it says, uh, you were rotten, I was rotten. And left in our own rottenness, we would have rotted. But by God's grace, he has intervened. And the same grace he gave to you, he gave to me. And that grace puts us on equal level ground at the foot of the cross. He goes on, he says, self-esteem has a self-exalting effect. Grace means humility. Boasting means I've arrived. Well, Paul explains his tactic to us, doesn't he? He's trying to be tactful. Do you think Paul thinks the Corinthians got it now? (laughs) Is Paul going to remain committed to the same tactic? Let me just give you the answer. No. In fact, he'll use other tactics as well. But just remember, you have to have more than one tool in your tactic toolbox, right? And this is Paul. He's using using tact here as tactic. A tactic. He exhorts them to apply what he has said about himself and Apollos to their own situation. He wants them to learn to live within the bounds of Scripture so they won't be puffed up with pride. Because when pride comes in, it pushes us outside the bounds of Scripture. He drives it home. No place for pride when you consider the grace of God. And I think that Paul's primary consideration here is not just that sense of humility before God at the foot of the cross. That's the ground. But the humility that we exhibit one towards another. Robert Murray McShane, oh, for true, unfeigned humility. I know I have cause to be humble, and yet I do not know one half of that cause. I know I am proud, and yet I do not know the half of that pride. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this this penetrating text. And we pray... Father, that the, that the truth here won't be lost on us. We pray that we won't be like the person that looks in the mirror and then turns away and forgets what he sees. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see with greater clarity those areas in our lives where, where we do have pride where we are puffed up and conceited. And Father, we pray that you would help us to to run straight to the cross, to crucify that pride. We pray that your grace would truly humble us, making us people that are kind and humble towards one another, 
and filled with gratitude for all you've done. Father, we thank you for your word. We love it. We pray that you would transform us by it through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.